right, so this is our uh, Simon Doan reading group, uh, continuing with our reading of Individuation, Volume 2, uh, on the text History of the Notion of the Individual. Um, by my notes, we are on page 603 of the PDF, um, so we're still on the section on Rousseau. Um, so last time we um, continued, we had a short session last time, so we didn't go over that much material, um, but we, we looked at um, how uh, the sort of paradox of the individual, the, the sort of um, duality of aspects within the individual or this uh, contradiction within the individual in uh, for Rousseau gets uh, realized in terms of a, a temporal duality. Um, so uh, Rousseau describes, uh, when he's writing his autobiography, he describes his life as divided into two periods. Um, so his, his youth um, up to the age of 30 or so, um, and, and he sort of makes the dividing line, um, the, the period when he starts publishing uh, books and, and essays and so on, um, uh, so around 30 years old, uh, and then the, the next half of his life, um, so he's writing his autobiograph autobiographical texts um, in his uh, 60s or so, um, and he, so the next 30 years or so uh, of his life formed the second period, which he considers to be... Um, uh, a period of uh, misfortunes uh, in general. So he, he, he sort of looks back uh, nostalgically on his youth as a period of uh, uh, happiness. And um, he looks back on the subsequent 30 years, the, the last half of his life as being a period of misfortune. Uh, and we'll see um, a bit more on, on those misfortunes uh, in today's reading and, and how he sort of um, makes sense of them. Uh, okay, so let's uh, start uh, with the reading on page 603. So I, I will um, read a, about a page or so. This stability, which permits one to be oneself, risks being dis destroyed by everything that unmoors the being from himself. Quote, my head, screwed up to the pitch of an instrument it did not naturally accord with, had lost its diapason. In time, it returned to it again when I discontinued my follies, or at least gave in to those more consonant to my disposition, end quote, new quote. I think I have already remarked that there are times in which I am so unlike myself that I might be taken for a man of direct opposite disposition, end quote. This will to, this will to be oneself corresponds to a need to define a firm attitude with respect to society, quote. I consoled myself for my want of aptitude in conducting myself skillfully in the world on feeling it as a science uh, sorry, I'm feeling it is a science we should not endeavor to attain, end quote. The attempts to adapt loosely, if not cleverly, to a society for which Rousseau is not made end in failure. The civilization of Venice, Lyon, Paris is foreign to his soul. All the efforts to make him no longer a cursed beast become exhausted in fairly ineffective expedients. Rousseau's nostalgia amidst, quote, pretentious people, unquote, is revealed to him when he sees, quote, a poor, simple bush of thorns, a hedge, a barn, a meadow, end quote. He would have then readily, quote, struck the face of Monsieur Leader and Monsieur Master, end quote. This liberation regarding social rules is symbolized by the sale of the watch, but there is also the need for a positive aspect to this reform, quote, thrown into the world in spite of myself without having the manners of it or being in a situation to adopt and conform myself to them. I took it into my head to adopt others of my own to enable me to dispense with those of society, end quote. On the 26th of January, 1771, Rousseau writes to the Marquise de Saint-Chamond, quote, For eight years, I sought a soul among men. Now I no longer search for anything, and my lantern has faded, end quote. 
Nevertheless, even in this moment, Rousseau writes, quote, our most pleasant existence is relative and collective, and ourself is not completely within us. For Rousseau, the idea of the conspiracy is not just an expression of a mental derangement. Rousseau does not want the conspiracy to use a completely false portrait of the character and life of the author as its principal means. There is a conspiracy of lies about the individual. The conspirators want to bury him alive. The League is this barrier between the individual and the world. Its goal is apparently to, quote, organize the inconsequentiality, end quote, of Rousseau's behavior. Through this reasoning of the imagination, Rousseau forces outside himself the aspect of incoherence that he feels in order to unify himself. He also forces outside himself the existence of what modern psychiatrists call the anxiety threshold, which prevents the subject from achieving even the simplest acts of life without feeling himself dangerously isolated and shut off in himself in some way. All the images Rousseau employs are characteristic of the mental states in which he finds himself at that moment. But the point that is most interesting here in particular for the study of the individuality is the following. Rousseau wants to somehow render his individuality coherent by simply forcing outside himself those aspects of inhibition that are revealed within himself. Since inhibition in its effects is completely similar to an external object, this transformation is easy. Furthermore, this inhibition is combined with a disorder of contradictory impulses which impede one another. Rousseau also accuses the League for this disorder so as to ward it off and force it outside himself in order to purify his individuality. Quote, their project, as I have told you, is to do a general recasting of all the anecdotes collected or made up by their satellites, and to arrange them in a historical body disposed so artfully and worked out so carefully that everything absurd and contradictory, far from appearing to be a tissue of crude fables, will, will appear to be the result of the inconsistency of man, end quote. Um, I'll stop here because this is a giant uh, paragraph. Um, so here we have... Uh, Rousseau's explanation for this sort of duality or, or uh, inconsistency of, of his character, uh, which he, um, he attributes to this conspiracy against him. Uh, he he uh, sort of externalizes the um, uh, inconsistency or, or incoherence of his personality uh, onto this external conspiracy. And he, he takes it that... Uh, this uh, conspiracy or this league against him is sort of uh, assembling all these anecdotes and uh, different stories about him in such a way as to depict him as incoherent, as opposed to uh, sort of recognizing that incoherence as part of who he is. Uh, and so this externalization is a, a sort of um, uh, a strategy for, uh, again, sort of splitting the self into um, the, the sort of real coherent self and the uh, incoherent uh, appearance or um, the incoherent, the illusory incoherence that the conspiracy is sort of projecting onto him. Uh, and so again, it's, it's a kind of splitting of the individual to uh, preserve a kind of um, uh, good half of the individual from the, the bad half uh, that is uh, sort of externalized. I remember that in one of those sections in uh, Psychic and Collective Individuation, Simon Don talks about the importance of inhibition for trans individual and collective life. Um, and this, you know, this passage on Rousseau and anxiety, I think, recalls the anxiety section in uh, volume one. So I think there's, it seems like there's this kind of, I don't know, like misfiring of uh, the, the function of inhibition, the way inhibition is supposed to work in order to make uh, collective life possible in Rousseau that turns into it it being externalized in this way. 
Yeah, the, the bit about anxiety is definitely um, reminiscent of, of his discussion of anxiety in, in volume one. Um, and, and so in that, in volume one, he, um, he talks about anxiety as being a sort of dead end that, um, where the uh, processes that are supposed to continue into the collective uh, individuation, uh, so the continue from the level of psychic individuation to the level of uh, collective individuation, um, are sort of uh, individualized or or are sort of stuck at the level of of the individual, um, and the individual tries to uh, sort of perform this these tasks that are only um, really performable at the level of the collective, uh, and anxiety is sort of the result of the um, this incapacity to perform these tasks individually, uh, and so here um, this anxiety um, is is sort of um, um, used as the the uh, principle of this exteriorization. So there's a kind of um, um, the the fact that uh, that Rousseau finds himself unable to perform, uh, you know, the the tasks of uh, the social world in which he finds himself to sort of integrate himself into the um, the um, the you know cultured society of France or or wherever he finds himself. Um, this inhibition or this inability to sort of perform as expected is uh, is sort of externalized, and this uh, anxiety is sort of the the motivation or the the principle behind this externalization. Um, so yeah, there's a um, as as we've uh, I think suggested before, there there's uh, I think a a lot of the discussion in the psychic and collective individuation part of Volume One. Uh, we can find connections and, and parallels with um, his discussion of Rousseau here. And so what what exactly the historical sequence of events was, whether he sort of found these ideas in Rousseau and then took them up for himself, or whether he was developing those ideas for himself and then found them in Rousseau. I'm not sure what the order of events was, but there's definitely, um, this section on Rousseau is definitely one of the more important ones in the history of the notion of the individual in terms of how it relates to the um, to the content of volume one. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next section. If someone else would like to read, uh, I can read. So which uh, where did we leave off again? Um, so probably about a quarter of the way down on six hundred four after the quote. Uh, so beginning with there is in this mythical idea. Okay. There is in this mythical idea of the conspiracy a refusal to accept the knowledge and awareness of certain aspects of individuality. Should it be said that Rousseau's personality was richer in psychoses than a normal personality? That could be, but this procedure of the expulsion of inhibition and disorder is only livelier and more striking in Rousseau than in a less diverse man. In fact, this refusal to know oneself in one's entire multiplicity which includes the totality of the coherent and the incoherent, with a certain connection between the coherent and the incoherent, is a testimony of human individuality. It is difficult to fully account for one's own incoherence and inhibitions without resorting to myth. Before resorting to myth, Rousseau tried to unify the different stages of his life in the form of destiny. But destiny, which substantializes the individual, cannot account for inhibition and disorder. The notion of destiny must be expanded to the point of making history as a whole intervene. The conflict between Rousseau and the conspiracy takes on the dimension of an epic, between religious intolerance and the philosophy of the Enlightenment, which is the religion of counter-religion. Rousseau appears as the champion of truth. 
and this truth is no longer a truth for a group like the Jesuits or the uh, Philosophes, but a truth which, precisely because it is presented by an individual who is not a member of any community, presents within himself, within within itself, a guarantee of universality. Once again, myth is imbued with value and reconnects with the world by reaching the level of the epic, the epic of the mind. It is at this point that the whole the whole individual being is conceived not just as unique, but as exceptional in every respect. Quote, I dare to believe that I am uh, not like anyone who exists. My situation is unique. My case is unique since the world has existed. Unquote. This exceptional aspect of the being accounts for the, quote, long chain of his misfortunes, unquote, uh, that no long chain of reasons could arrange, but that takes on a meaning according to fatality. However, this latter explanation, which safeguards both the personal unity and infinite diversity of acts and aspirations, is not completely satisfying. Individuality always reappears as a paradox. It appears under fatal necessity. And correlatively, it deploys the feeling of the unique, indeterminate character of an instant. What creates necessity is the instant, and not perhaps a supernatural destiny sketched out for all eternity. Blind necessity emerges in the course of events, quote, and from that moment I was ruined. All the rest of my misfortunes during my life were the inevitable effect of this moment of error, unquote. Even the happy time of his life at L'Hermitage, which lends itself to the sweetness of remembrance, is called, quote, the terrible and, the terrible and fateful era of a fate unparalleled among mortals, unquote. In contrast, along, alongside this determinism that has emerged from a contingent moment, the determinism of personality mani- manifests that is so strong and clear that it permits reconstructing the unfolding of life rationally based on the hypotheses of this personality, in the same way that Condillac forged the constructive synthesis of sensations and ideas in the statue. Uh, quote, judge whether he could have escaped from the convergence of these different causes that made him what he is today. To get a better sense of this necessity, let's set aside all the facts for a moment. Let's suppose the only thing known is the temperament I described to you, and let's see what would naturally result from that in a fictional being about whom we would have no other idea, unquote. Here the ambivalence still remains. Natural determinism is also a moral force that has all the characteristics of providence. Quote, the man of nature learns to bear in everything the yoke of necessity, and to submit to it, never to murmur against providence, which began by filling him with precious gifts, which promises to his heart gifts more precious still, but which, in order to repair the injustices of fortune in men, chooses its time and not our own, unquote. So it seems like the, the, it seems like the kind of core of Rousseau's problem here, I guess, is that he keeps trying to substantialize himself in one way or another. Um, doing this by trying to understand his life in terms of destiny. Um, but this doesn't account for the incompleteness of the individual, which I guess is, is constitutive for the individual for Simon Don. And so that's why destiny has to turn into this world historical conflict. Uh, like to, when he externalizes these inconsistent aspects. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think, um, Rousseau sort of is a, an exemplar of this uh, impossible task of uh, sort of um, constituting the individual as this completed uh, sort of coherent totality 
uh, whereas for Simondon, uh, the individual exists only through its individual individuation and um, this sort of continual process of unification, which is never completed. And there's always this remainder of the pre-individual uh, within the individual. Uh, and so uh, for, for Rousseau in particular, he has all these sort of uh, dis, um, discontinuous or, or incoherent tendencies, uh, these sort of dis, disjointed uh, features of his personality that he keeps trying to find a way of accounting for in terms of uh, a coherent totality. Uh, and, and so every attempt sort of um, requires him to externalize some other factor or other elements and uh, posit it as being something outside of himself. Um, and so this notion of destiny or, or providence um, comes up a few times in his autobiographical writings where he, he sort of um, uh, depicts himself as being sort of uh, picked out to have a particular career. Uh, and then the sort of variant that Simon Don points to here is um, where he he sort of, uh, instead of uh, picking, instead of being selected by Providence for a particular career, it's instead that uh, his temperament or his personality sort of contains his whole life history uh, embedded within it. And, and his, his life history is a sort of working out of his original uh, temperament or or dispositions. Uh, so these are sort of variants that um, that Rousseau presents in different parts of his autobiographical writings. Um, but they they both have this um, uh, this sort of character of being a, a totality, uh, a coherent totality that is only uh, that it has to externalize anything incoherent. Uh, one bit that um, I was going to add to here is when when that might be. Uh, obscure um, is uh, when when Simon Don mentions here Condillac and the statue. Um, so there's a um, uh, a book by Condillac from around the same time as uh, as Rousseau was writing in the late 18th century. Um, uh, I think it's the essay on sensations or or I forget the exact title, but anyway, um, where Condillac um, presents his account of uh, this his empiricist account of the development of the human mind in a this sort of fictional uh, circumstance of a, a statue, and he uh, considers the you know adding sensations of, of various kinds to this statue, and uh, how what sort of mental life the statue would have if it only had the sense of touch, for example, uh, and then adding more different types of sensations, and how those sensations uh, sort of build up uh, a complex mental life. Uh, so that's what that bit about the statue uh, means here. I was just thinking, like, strange thing about Rousseau is that even though th- this this uh, conception of himself that he had seems, yeah, like obviously is grandiose and um, paranoid and unreasonable, but at the same time, like he, it does seem like <laughs> his personality was kind of the motor behind his writing all of this stuff and. You know, we are still talking about him 200 plus years later. So he, he wasn't entirely wrong, I think, in, in thinking of himself in that way. But he sort of like, it becomes right because he, because he had this grandiose self-conception. Yeah, there's, um, I think there, like, there's a lot of different things we could um, sort of take into consideration in analyzing why, you know, why we're still reading Rousseau 200 plus years later and, and why he's still of interest. Um, so one one factor is the way that he sort of um, uh, brings together a lot of uh, the uh, different currents 
uh, of the time and sort of uh, incarnates the the sort of um, 18th century uh, sort of uh, anti uh, anti clerical tradition and anti um, anti monarchical tradition, which feeds into the the French Revolution. Uh, you know that some of the uh, conservative critics of of Rousseau and and of that tradition have sort of uh, blamed him for the French Revolution and said, you know, he uh, his ideas were sort of the uh, one of the factors that led to the French Revolution, and that's probably an oversimplification. But he he sort of um, he's one of the people, and along with people like Voltaire and Diderot, um, who um, who sort of uh, express some of the ideas uh, that are that that um, are brought to fruition in the French Revolution, uh, you know, a few years later. Um, and then there's also, uh, at the same time, I think what is um, unique about Rousseau in comparison with some of the other writers uh, of that era is the way that he sort of points to the romantic school um, or tradition that develops a little bit later. Uh, and, and so his um, valorization of feeling over um, reason and, uh, his sort of nature worship and uh, some of the other uh, elements of his thought uh, point towards the romantic tradition that develops later in the 19th century, uh, later in the end of the 18th, uh, beginning of the 19th century. Um, and so he he's at the one he's at the same time sort of one of the um, uh, sort of incarnations of the the uh, Enlightenment. Um, tradition of the 18th century, but he also points beyond that to the the romantic tradition of the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. And so there's like this sort of dual character or the, this dual value of his work that we can read in, in either of those contexts, which I think is um, still of interest today. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like the first part of what Angus uh, has just read, like um, the mythical, mythical idea of a conspiracy to uh, kind of like the multiplicity uh, versus like a totality and universality and something like that. And then what uh, catch my eye uh, was eyes was like mm, myth or destiny. Cause uh, the other day I I talked with uh, my colleague about the antiquity push like that's uh, section I uh, know chapter three and then section five something like that. That part exactly talked about like a destiny and the fate or something like that like that's the part of like a uh talking about that um but at the same time like it brings up of the idea of fate and then destiny something like that so it was quite interesting uh, in this simon uh, uh writing like it's like a destiny was used to 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 represent like some kind of accumulation of uh, individual abilities, uh, which uh, like uh, comes up as a as a kind of a totality or universality, uh, which might have been like adopted as a kind of the particularly in religion religion something like that. So, oh yeah, interesting. Like uh, this part, I'm just wondering like it could overlap like a uh, a part uh, of with a part of the Antiochus at the same time. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what. Um they say in anti-Oedipus about myth there, but there's um, some interesting passages in Difference and Repetition where Deleuze talks about how, um, how or, or maybe it's logic of sense, I can't remember, but uh, Deleuze talks about how Plato sort of has recourse to myth 
um, at various sort of key points in different dialogues. Um, um, so like in the in the Phaedrus, when he's talking about the immortality of the soul, he gives a, a sort of myth of um, how the soul uh, selects a, a life to to incarnate or to um, take shape uh, to shape, take shape in. Um, and uh, in the in the Republic, we have the the myth of the uh, the cave and the um, uh, you know the vision of the forms on the cave wall and so on. Um, and so in in all these dialogues, there's a a sort of a key point where Plato uh, introduces a myth, um, and um, I think here the the role of myth is to sort of grant a kind of coherence to a, a life in in a way that it wouldn't ha- have otherwise. Uh, so the myth has a, a sort of narrative structure; it has a beginning, middle, and end that has that have some sort of continuity or coherence to them. Uh, and so by sort of projecting this myth onto your life, you presented as a, a kind of coherent story as opposed to just a, a contingent set of circumstances or a, a set of accidents that happened to this particular person. Um, and, and so uh, understanding yourself in terms of, you know, the conflict between religion, uh, religious intolerance and, uh, and uh, freedom of thought or something along those lines, this sort of um, um, depiction of yourself as part of uh, a world historical process um, allows you to uh, make your life history coherent uh, and sort of put your life history in in terms of a, a story that that makes sense. Uh, and so I think that's sort of the role of myth here um, in in um, in Rousseau's use of this uh, these terms of like destiny, uh, providence, and so on. Um, but we can also think. Uh, also, we can also think of um, the way at the beginning of this text, the uh, history of the notion of the individual, how Simon Don points to the role of the artisan as sort of um, disrupting the the realm of myth um, and and being one of the key factors leading to the development of philosophy, uh, because um, like in ancient Greek society, say in uh, 700 BC or 800 BC, somewhere. In the sort of pre-philosophical era, uh, we have mythical explanations for the world. Um, you know, thunder is brought about by Zeus, and and so on. Uh, we have different stories that explain natural phenomena in terms of the the will of the gods, <clears throat> and the uh, the artisan for Simondon is because he has this access to the world that sort of short circuits or goes around the social uh, realm of myth. Um, sort of incorporates or connects the individual to the natural world in a way that is independent of myth. Uh, and, and this is sort of the origin of philosophical slash scientific explanation of the world uh, as opposed to mythical explanation of the world. So I wonder if here this sort of mythical sense of the self or this depiction of the self in coherent terms uh, through, through myth uh, would also in some way um, be subject to a kind of interruption by um, by a, a more direct contact or a, a, a contact that doesn't uh, pass through the, the the social order of, of myth and, and narrative uh, and and that would allow for some sort of explanation of uh, an individual's biography uh, without having recourse to uh, concepts like destiny or, or providence and so on. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for a good explanation. So, kind of at the same time, this kind of thing is like uh, uh, related to Spinoza and God, like uh, who could uh, uh, embrace like uh, all, all all contradictory contradictions, all kind of like uh, irrational representations of the things, behaviors, or something like that. Uh, but my question is like, who so seems to like be beyond that? I mean, what I mean is here. Uh, maybe like there must be some limitation of the the era, a time like 18th centuries, like the the right after the the era of God, and then the humans like um, enlightenment is like goes on, I mean went on, but the still like uh, uh, I think like a uh, humans agency or things uh, within the frame of the the world of God. Um, so Husu is trying to like oh. oh I mean, he's a kind of a person, but he's like a the weirdo, like a overcome. No, no, no. Like a going going beyond that. But yeah, maybe like he was still like a um uh, was and then kind of stayed like in the shackles of the era. Ah, uh, I'm just wondering like Simon Dong uh, might have brought him as a kind of example of um person who I mean transcendental figure of all kind of the um. Rules, the God's rules, like uh, things are, uh, like humans, the um, will or humans, like the autonomy or agency, altogether uh, represented through like Husserl. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting um, suggestion because um, I mean, not to sort of take us too far afield, but um, when you when you bring up Spinoza, um, I recently read the book uh, by Knox Payton, Spinoza versus uh, sorry Spinoza contra phenomenology, um, which is an interesting book about the history of French philosophy in the 20th century and this sort of Spinozistic tradition, this rationalist tradition um, that, you know, including Deleuze as, as part of this Spinozistic tradition. Um, and um, there's a, a bit in that book when, he, when he's talking about Althusser and his sort of Spinozistic version of Marxism, um, where he, he, uh, he quotes um, uh, a bit from Althusser where he, he says that, um, Sort of the this I think it's from the sixties um, where he says that the the sort of intellectual project is to um, not tell oneself stories anymore. Um, so not to sort of represent the world in terms of stories um, or or you know myths. We could also uh, sort of translate that in terms of myths. Um, and so there's this uh, sort of Spinozistic project of um, uh, finding a way to understand the human world without having recourse to myths. Uh, and and this is uh, and and so for Spinoza in uh, himself, there's a, a whole sort of uh, conflict with what he calls superstition. Uh, so depictions of God as a as a stern judge or a, a father who you know punishes people for doing wrong and rewards people for doing right. Uh, so this whole picture of of God for Spinoza is a, a sort of superstitious one that is only. Um, uh, is sort of adapted to human understanding as opposed to a, a rational understanding of God. Um, and um, yeah, so I think we can sort of uh, look at Spinoza and other other writers who have been inspired by Spinoza as having this sort of um, opposition to myth uh, and opposition to stories as a, a way of understanding the world and trying to develop a, a sort of um, rational conception of the world in terms of um, the order of causes 
uh, for Spinoza. And um, yeah, so the, there's a, a sort of project of uh, reconceiving of the world uh, without having to use myth or stories. Yeah, maybe okay, it would come again like later. So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Yeah, the, the point about myth makes me think of um, volume one and uh, in the collective individuation section where he distinguishes between myth and I think it's myth and uh, either belief or opinion. Um, but he seems to say that myth is sort of like the this kind of internal um, affective life of the group, something that doesn't really need to be explained, but uh, these... I don't know, shared feelings or assumptions about the world um, that aren't really translated uh, externally when the group needs to justify itself. But, um, you know, the group justifies itself externally in terms of beliefs, which are not ideas that it would have to formulate, um, you know, one group member to another because they already have these shared assumptions and only appear when it's the group is kind of uh, challenged from outside. I don't know where that would put Simon Don in the Benozistic, um rationalist tradition you were talking about. Yeah, he. Um, I think I think it is belief that he talks about um, as being sort of the individual, um, like in in the case of an individual person, um, uh, as opposed to myth as as being the uh, collective phenomenon. Um, and yeah, so we he, if I remember correctly, he says something like. Um, we only have beliefs uh, insofar as we're already uh, sort of challenged or um, uh, insofar as the, the sort of collective representation of the world is, is already um, subject to uh, contradiction in some way. So um, myth is the collective uh, sort of representation of the world, um, which doesn't need to be explicitly stated or explicitly um, uh, set out in, in uh you know, in, in a text or, or in a, a story that is uh, told orally. Um, it's, it's just the sort of average understanding of the world um, that people who belong to this particular group will have. And then it's only once, um, once this sort of understanding of the world uh, of that group is confronted with an alternate understanding of the world in another group or, um, or some sort of internal fracture or something like that, that this uh, myth starts to be um, takes on the form of belief um, as as a sort of explicitly stated proposition, and, and we can think of um, like in the sort of ancient Mediterranean world, um, you know, there's Greek religion that you know has the, this pantheon of gods that have different properties and so on, um, and then we can think about like Herodotus uh, travels around the Mediterranean world, and he he always uh, he finds um, these different religious practices in different parts of the world. And he sort of identifies the gods of other peoples with the Greek gods. He says, you know, this people worship uh, Hercules and, and uh, uh, or this other people worship Zeus in this way or, or whatever. Um, right. Yeah. Like Zeus, Zeus wears these clothes over here for some reason. <laughs> yes, exactly. So he, he always assimilates the, the foreign gods to the Greek gods. Um, and, uh, um, so it, with with Herodotus, there's a sort of a partial depiction, I guess, of um, uh, or a partial transition from myth to belief in the sense that he um, he starts to recognize that there's a, a difference between the way that the the Greeks 
um, understand natural phenomena and, and the world uh, in terms of their pantheon uh, and then the way that other peoples represent the world. But he, he sort of, um, his way of understanding that difference is by sort of mapping the beliefs of other people onto his own beliefs. Uh, but then we have uh, in the, the more, I guess, uh, rationalist tradition within Greece, within ancient Greek philosophy, there's, um, uh, was it Xenocrates or I can't remember now his name, but anyway, he, he um, uh, makes the, the statement that I think got him into trouble um, that uh, the different, different peoples depict the gods in their own image. Um, and so the Ethiopians depict the gods as uh, having dark skin, whereas the Greeks depict the gods um, as having light skin and so on. Um, and, uh, and then he, he also holds that um, astronomical bodies are, are just stones or are, are not divine in any way. Um, and, and so there's this uh, sort of counter superstition or counter mythical tradition that already begins in ancient Greek philosophy uh, and we see um, in uh, the Epicurean school in particular, this was like uh, a sort of uh, one of the key ideas or key motivating principles was to counter superstition and uh, sort of free humans from superstition. Uh, and for Simon Don, I think he, uh, I don't, I don't think he takes on that project for himself. I don't think he, he wants to sort of counter superstition. Um, I think he wants to sort of, account for the reality of myth. So what is it that is expressed in mythical thought or mythical um, self-understanding of the world? Uh, so what, what aspect of the world is grasped when, when the world is depicted in mythical terms? Uh, so yeah, I think Simon Don is kind of um, uh, outside of that um, rationalist anti-superstition tradition. Um, and, and so he's not a Spinozist in that sense. Okay, um, so let's, uh, that was a sort of a digression from the text, but uh, let's come back to the text and um, read the next section. Uh, if, Ali, would you like to read? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, is that the same aspect of paradoxical? Uh, yes. Oh, all right. The same aspect of a paradoxical contradiction, the solution of which uh, posits Again, a new problem from within itself is revealed in Husserl's art of living. To flee from men and to be seeking them out, we have written deep within one's heart and uh, the need for a friend and to be unable to keep any. These are ethical contradictions. All these contradictions are summed up in the reciprocity of life and death. Quotes. I can indeed say that I only began to live when I regard myself as a dead man. End of quotes. At this point, the Husserl would like to destroy a part of himself. Quotes. Reason kills me. I would like to be mad as well as to be healthy. End of quotes. Exile is anticipated as a means of accessing the existence of Robinson Crusoe. Quotes. It has come to me a hundred times to propose traveling to America, hoping that I would be left in peace. I would like to find some way to end my life in, in the island of the archipelago in Cyprus or in some of the parts of Greece, provided that I find an agreeable climate, fertile in plants. End of quotes. Failing exile, the pas passionate preoccupations of life become the fundamental methods for the art of living, particularly botany and music. Husserl gives an incredible amount of attention to botany. He asks for a microscope and goes on excursions that are sometimes painful, like the excursions to Mont Pilar. From Mongkwan, 
His letters to Madame de Rousseau show the extent of death, death of Rousseau's knowledge, as well as the painstaking nature of his methods of observation. Through this effort, Rousseau is convinced that he can escape from madness and disorder. Quotes, his preoccupation is lost to a walking machine, which is prohibited from thinking. Unable to leave my head empty, I want to stuff it. It must be full of hay to be free and true without fear of being discreet. End of quotes. Similarly, the taste for music is active, active in Rousseau, who plays a, a zither and tries to rediscover the romances of Geneva, which is, he sings, so he says, quotes, with a broken voice. End of quotes. His tastes, particularly that of botany, are consequently an uh, affair of reason. End of quotes. At the same time, Rousseau attempts to discover a doctrinal truth that does not aim at universally, but can be perfectly suitable for the individual. Quotes, I adopted in each question the feeling which is sent to me, the most directly established, the most credible in itself. It is important to have a sense of self, to choose it with all the maturity of judgment one can manage, end of quotes. Rousseau wants to uh, wants a doctrine that conforms to inner assent. Quotes, so solid, so appropriate to my reason, to my heart, my whole being, and reinforced with the inner assent that I feel lacking in all others, and of course. Consequently, it is no longer intellectual life that is the deployment of the individual and that affirms him as a worker of universality, but on the contrary, the individual who seeks a philosophy that's well adapted to him. It is this point, in particular, that marks the position between the conception of individuality in the, in the 17th century and Rousseau's conception of his own individuality. Furthermore, according to Rousseau, reason can be acknowledged the existence of an, of an order superior to it. Quotes, I cannot prevent myself from the handfuls considering as one of those secrets of heaven impenetrable, impenetrable to human reason, the same work that until now are looked upon as only a fruit of wickedness of men. End of quote. This supernatural force is sometimes envisioned according to the modality of an Eastern fatalism, sometimes according to the forms of a Christian providence. This is because in, in the belief in destiny and providence, there is acceptance of oneself. Quotes, reduced to myself alone, I nourish myself. It is true, my own, own substance, but it does not run out. I am sufficient into, unto myself. And of course, here... The distinction between amour pour amour pour and self-love intervenes, just as within the robbery, the distinction intervenes between the self we leave behind the true self we enjoy relative to which nothing is external, the which a begon in l'âme romantique et le rêve characterizes by saying, absolute self-consciousness here is conflated with what we call the unconscious. End of course. Stop here. We'll continue. Uh, yeah, that's a good place to stop. Thanks. You're um, yeah, so here we have this opposition between reason and feeling that I that I alluded to earlier um, in in Rousseau, where he um, he tries to or he he sort of sets himself up as being uh, a person of feeling as opposed to a person of reason, uh, and he he wants to he he considers feeling to be superior to reason, and he has a sort of dream of freeing himself from reason and sort of relying on feeling. 
And in uh, doctrinal questions or questions of philosophy, he also wants to rely on feeling as opposed to reasoning. Uh, but at the same time, um, despite some of these uh, pronouncements and, and the passages that Simondon quotes here, um, Rousseau also was uh, closely associated with the um, rationalist philosophy of the 18th century. Um, he was friends with Diderot, um, and he contributed articles to the Encyclopédie. Um, and he, at one point, um, was working on a textbook of chemistry that was like a thousand pages long or something like that. It, it was this huge textbook of chemistry um, that uh, he never finished, but he uh, he wrote uh, um, you know all kinds of stuff on chemistry. Um, and so he he, despite his sort of skepticism of reason and his privileging of feeling, he he still um, kind of uh, participates in the life of reason uh, in in those ways. And so this is just another aspect of the sort of contradictory nature of his um, of his personality or or this duality of aspects of his personality. Yeah, he's definitely an interesting person. There's a um, you know there's the the famous line from uh, uh, Whitman that you know I I and many I contain multitudes. Uh, I, I think is the line. I'm probably quoting it wrong. Um, but uh, um, you know the this idea that. Um, Contradiction is something that um, sort of enriches a personality. That uh, a personality can um, uh, <clears throat> contain contradictory aspects, uh, and that is not sort of a, a weakness of personality, but a a, a sort of um, richness of personality. Uh, and so, this uh, is also, I think, probably new with Rousseau, uh, and and is sort of contributes to the romantic tradition that that follows um I, I think i don't think any earlier authors or at least i don't know of any earlier authors who would sort of depict contradiction of personality or or this incoherence of personality as part of a a, a richness of personality in the way that Rousseau does uh okay so we oh, sorry here. i go sorry Rousseau, in that sense like the multiple characters or personalities kind of can you like compare that to to like a the mythology, Greek mythology, like a Zeus, like oh, like uh, the god and the oldest, uh, oldest statement, because like uh, everything is in there, like very whimsical and then very frustrating at the same time, like uh, seeking for the kind of virtues, and then something like that, very individual, very collective, all the things like in one one person, like yeah, that uh, you know, it reminds me when you, when you mention uh, you know, sort of trying to connect this with the Greek gods. Um, there's a passage in Fire Advent. I don't. I don't think he's the one who sort of came up with this idea, but he. I remember reading it in Fire Advent, where he talks about um, this argument that um, that uh, ancient Greek worlds, like the people of the Homeric era, um, more or less, uh, didn't sort of conceive of themselves or experience themselves as unities in the way that maybe modern people do. Um, so there was no sort of notion of consciousness or of uh, a sort of unified uh, experience in the way that we are sort of familiar with today in, in the, I guess, post-Cartesian world. Um, and one of the pieces of evidence that he gives for this um, sort of lack of unity of the ancient Greek mind was the way that in Homer, all, all the different sort of emotional responses of people are depicted as uh, gods that appear to them. Uh, like there's a passage that uh, I think Simondo actually quotes this passage uh, in volume one, where 
um, a dream is like uh, the, the dream is uh, comes to the person and, and sits at the bottom of the bed and and sort of arrives to the person from outside. Um, and then we have other passages where Achilles gets angry and this is depicted as um, uh, Ares, um, Ares sort of appears to him and, and uh, like instigates him to anger or, or instigates him to some sort of violent act. Uh, and so all these different emotional responses that the people uh, are depicted as experiencing are, are always presented as like something that the gods infuse into them or, or bring to them from outside. And so this is taken to, to be a, a sort of representation of the individual um, with, that doesn't have a, a sort of uh, coherent unity, but that is subject to these sort of external um, phenomena and, and these different aspects of the individual are sort of presented as these different gods or these different um, uh, principles that, that arrive to the individual from outside. Uh, and so this is um, uh, this sort of um, incoherence of the individual or this presentation of the individual as being made up of these multiple factors that uh, don't have a, a sort of intrinsic unity to them, uh, I think is something that that Rousseau sort of picks up on. Uh, but at the same time, there's always this sort of striving for unity with him that we see um, in some of the passages that Simon Don quotes. And it's this and the, the sort of paradox is that it's the striving for unity and the striving for coherence that results in a splitting of the personality into, you know, the life of the young man versus the life of the older man, or um, the the true self versus the self that the conspiracy is projecting onto it. Um, and and these, so it's this, the striving for for coherence that brings about this sort of splitting of the individual. And uh, yeah, so I think we can certainly compare this sort of uh, multiplicity of of uh, of the personality of of Rousseau with this uh, sort of argument about the uh, lack of intrinsic unity in the ancient Greek mind. Um, you know, however, you know whether we find that uh, convincing or not, but it's a similar type of uh, situation. Whether whether or not it's um, accurate about depicting the ancient Greek mind. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, oh, actually, one thing just to mention in terms of um, formatting here <clears throat> is that in the French text, there's a, a line break and a, and this sort of uh, italicized heading, which I think is indicating a section break. So I think the we're supposed to read this next bit as a uh, the next couple of paragraph about a page or so as uh, not being part of the Rousseau section, but as being a transition to the next section. Um, but the uh, the English translation, for whatever reason, doesn't include that line break. Um, so it's the the uh, distinction between the sections is not quite as obvious, but I think we are meant to read this as a line break. Um, would someone else like to read uh, from the search for individual reality? Yeah, I can read. The search for individual reality in the 18th century occurs by way of a deepening of the being's concrete singularity. But this deepening of singularity leads to a splitting as pronounced as the bi-substantialist dualism of the 17th century. The individual is found to be inhibited by himself, and his search for freedom collides with the barrier that he himself is, just as his desire for plenitude collides with this interior emptiness of the being who feeds on his own substance. The interior duality in the presence of the other resurge from within, posing problems different from those that appeared in the 17th century with an analogous internal dynamic, as if the problem of individuality 
were always the same in its source uh, throughout various intellectual and social circumstances changing from age to age. In the 18th century, deism appears as an aspect of a general tendency that consists in the individual's search for all, all the elements of his moral and intellectual life in his experience and his reasoning. Deism is therefore opposed to this quote-unquote true religion to which uh, François de la Chambre uh, consecrates his treatise of 1737. There is nothing more desirable, quote, there's nothing more desirable either for princes or for societies or for the particulars that compose them, unquote, for princes as the, quote, motive of keeping people in duty, unquote, for societies who find in God avenging crimes a stimulant to virtue, for those who find in God a consoler. Deism and atheism are associated based on all the protests in favor of tolerance. All the reformational tendencies, while the deists' adversaries assert the value of social police and the means of government. Deism is associated with empiricism and individualism. Quote-unquote, inner feeling is in fact a strength of the individual. The morality of feeling that develops in the 18th century also affirms the value of individual consciousness. Thus, Shaftesbury believes in natural social inclinations which are, for each individual being, directed toward the good of the species. These inclinations are the work of a providence that maintains through them the perfect harmony of universal order. Uh, man possesses a quote-unquote moral sense that makes him aware of good and evil. In 1725, Hutchison systematizes these ideas in his inquiry into the, or, into the original of our ideas of beauty and virtue. For Hutchison, there is a quote-unquote moral sense it truly deserves the name sense, since it does not presuppose any innate idea. Diderot brings these ideas relative to the moral sense into France by translating Shaftesbury's An Inquiry Concerning Virtue or Merit. In England in 1723, the fable of the bees, or private vices, public benefits, expands the vision that Mandeville developed in 1705 on the topic of the rapport between individual morality and collective life. Even private vices can contribute to the smooth functioning of society, which in this sense so often depends on non-virtuous foundations. This work exerted significant influence throughout the 18th century, not via the rigorism that drives Mandeville, but due to the schematism that it contains and that, it, that opposes it to Hobbes' thesis on authority. Individualist ethics is particularly prominent in Wolf's thought. Wolf's thought. His essential rule is reminiscent of Kant's, quote, do what makes you and your neighbor more perfect and abstain from the opposite, unquote. This individualist and naturalist ethics does not acknowledge any authority other than the reason knowledge of what we are. The correlative of this ethical conception is a geometrical vision of the universe in which the whole is composed of collaborating individuals. The representation of society leads to the political theory of enlightened despotism. A liberal individualism is completed by a state which, to maintain unity, regulates the life of individuals down to its finest details. This providential sovereign compels its subjects to work and to save, and it takes measures against deism and atheism. However, Vico and Montesquieu, Montesquieu did not completely reduce human reality to the activity of individuals. Furthermore, the authors of Natural Series the authors of natural series have understood specific realities. But perhaps, say Vico, these authors elaborated a social static equilibrium 
in a biological static equilibrium rather than corresponding dynamic equilibria. However, a static equilibrium seems to be able to be superposed onto a dynamic theory of individual reality without modifying it. These thoughts have remained somewhat independent from the conception of the individual and have not become the universal systems that they could have been if they were dynamic equilibria. It is only later that these social and biological dynamic equilibria will have considerable importance for the theory of individual reality. Yeah, this section is super dense. But is this idea, the, the various theories of kind of the possibility of social life on the basis of the actions, private actions of um, autonomous individuals, is he saying that this is what leads to this kind of social static equilibrium as opposed to a dynamic one because it starts from these already constituted individuals? Uh, yeah, I think that's part of what he's um, arguing here. Uh, so there's um, um, a book, which I have not read, but uh, which is often cited, uh, I believe the author is C.B. McPherson uh, on possessive individualism. Um, and so he, he sort of um, identifies this tradition uh, primarily in Anglophone philosophy, um, uh, but uh, that also you know, travels to France in the, in the 18th century of um, uh, what he calls possessive individualism. So it's a depiction of the individual as essentially a, a property owner. Um, and, and to be an individual is to have property. Uh, and societies are, are sort of uh, founded on the, the basis of the right to uh, own property and um, they're sort of the sort of um, purpose of a society is to protect the property of the individual, uh, and and so this is a um, a common sort of trope in the ideas of uh, British writers uh, of that era, and and then later French writers. Um, and uh, there's the yeah. So this section is a, a very quick sort of overview of the whole 18th century, more or less. Um, um, but I think what he is suggesting here is that um, that by by sort of uh, isolating the individual and trying to treat the individual in isolation and then sort of adding on um, how how those isolated individuals uh, sort of create the collective life um, in doing so you sort of uh, get you sort of paint yourself into a corner where um, the it becomes impossible to sort of to understand the real history of social life. And so he points to Vico and Montesquieu as two people who, um, who didn't uh, perform this sort of reduction. Um, and they're precisely people who try to, um, try to develop a, a historical account of, uh, of societies and how they arise and, and how they transition from one form to another and so on. Um, but uh there's a, a sort of tendency to treat societies as uh, the a static equilibrium, so as a, a a sort of social order that is not supposed to change. And then the question is just um, how do the sort of private actions of individuals uh, uh, reproduce this social order and and ensure its continuity? And then the sort of practical question is what should the the prince, the enlightened despot, what what should he do to ensure that the social order remains stable? Um, and then, so this whole conception of the world um, or conception of the social order uh, sort of presupposes that stability is desirable and is uh, the, the sort of um, 
the principle that the social order should be governed by, whereas what we find in later uh, social philosophy or writers on the social order is a a sort of dynamic um, progress-oriented conception of the social order, where the idea is that um, the social order should uh, should, uh, develop over time and become excessively better uh, or in some sense um, more perfect over time and and so this is um, like the the 19th century sort of evolutionist in the in the broad sense of the term uh, conception of social order uh, and so we'll see more on this opposition uh, later I think when we get to the 19th century section of this text but um, yeah there's this opposition between a, a sort of static conception of the social order um, made up of uh, sort of atomic individuals on the one hand, and then a, a dynamic conception of the social order that involves some sort of uh, progress or intrinsic development of uh, one social order into a, a future one. And uh, I'll, I'll probably I'll just add to to that um, as a sort of preview, I guess, of what we're going to see in the 19th century section. But um, of course, Simon Do, in setting up this kind of opposition between a um, a static and a dynamic conception of the social order will want to uh, sort of overcome this opposition. And we already saw some of this in volume one, where he he criticizes both um, treating the individual as already constituted and then secondarily being sort of connected to other individuals in some way that is supposed to bring about the social order. But he also criticizes conceptions of the social order as being a, a kind of collective substance that exists independently of the individuals or or over and above the individuals in some mysterious way. Uh, and so the the sort of dynamic conception that I or the progress or evolutionist conception of social order uh, that I um, mentioned just a minute ago uh, has the the sort of uh, risk or the danger of falling into that substantialist conception of the social order where you depict like um, and and maybe Hegel would be like the uh, one of the um, exemplars of this, um, where you depict uh, world history as a, a sort of succession of these collectives of, you know, different peoples that um, uh, sort of realize different philosophical principles. Uh, and there's this collective uh, substance that is sort of transitioning from one era to the next. Uh, and and this, um, this is a, a kind of substantialist uh, depiction of the social order that Simondon also wants to reject. And he, he wants to find a conception of collective life that doesn't either um, start from already constituted individuals or from an already constituted society. Uh, it's a, a sort of intermediate realm um, that uh, out of which the individual and the, the social order are sort of uh, generated. Uh, so it's, it's this process of collective individuation that is of interest and not the... Um, already constituted society that that he wants to sort of grasp in his in his uh, notion of collective individuation okay um i'm gonna suggest that we stop here for today uh, even though it's a bit early um just because we're at a sort of natural break here and uh i haven't uh read ahead from this point uh, in preparing for these sessions so um if uh, if that's okay with everyone uh we can stop here for today yeah that sounds good to me yeah, sure, sure. Okay, great. So thanks everyone for coming out. Um, we'll pick up on Motesquia next time. And uh, we have 
a bit more on a few 18th century authors uh, and some that are um, not often read. So some of them I don't really know a lot about, but we'll, we'll go through that for the next uh, 10 pages or so, and then we get to the 19th century. That sounds good. Yeah, thanks, Nan. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you. See you next week. Bye. Bye.